the best learning styles actually require the most freedom, faith, trust, uh, respect. And I think this is where the intersection with social justice comes in. We have to got to make the learning strategies that we know work available to everyone. And that's another place that um, whether you're a science center, a children's museum, a history museum, we're in a position to introduce that type of teaching and learning. Welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing really well. How are you? I am fantastic. And Excellent. I have a question for you. Okay. When you hear the phrase children's museum, what comes to mind? Well, I think of vibrant colors. Probably think of some loud noises. <laughs> I think of uh, hand sanitizer, I would say. There you go. And education in the form of play for children to be able to understand larger concepts about the world, but feel like they're having fun at the same time. You may have just written someone's mission statement. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Or I'm, I'm just going to open a children's museum. No, you might, you might. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you've got some uh, some research you're doing at home with uh, your, your own uh, focus group. Yes, yes, now, a focus Jacob. group of one. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> exactly. What about you? What do you think of? I think of uh, very similar things. Um, well, until this interview, I thought of very similar things because now after speaking to Andrea Wiles, the president and chief executive officer of the DuPage Children's Museum, I think of children's museums as, as having such a wider opportunity to influence the education and development, not only of children, but of communities, of families, and truly I mean, they could be one of the keys to a successful future for our species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and we covered all that in this interview, uh, which really, I think it's very deep as well as very, very broad at the same time in terms of the impact that children's museums have on their audience, which includes the children as well as the parents from, you know, ensuring that the, the concepts are transferred in that uh, in the most effective ways. But like you said, being able to help their communities and being able to work towards innovative ways to solve many of the world's biggest issues. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of times, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, when I think of an attractions leader, whether it's a museum or a theme park or whatever, you know, so often I think of that person and how they impact that particular location or that particular facility. But the way Andrea really talks about it is that you've got to be a community leader as much as you are an attraction leader, right? So especially as she's talking about building relationships with hospitals and schools and, and places that, that care for children, like, you know, after school programs and those type of things, it's really about bringing all of those entities and all those people together. Like, as she says, it takes a village to, you know, develop the children, um, not just creating a space where there's, you know, the, the bright colors and the opportunity to play and making sure you have enough pipe cleaners and stuff for people in those, in those areas. Uh, but really looking at it, looking at it in such a bigger way um, that again, I just, I just think is fascinating. I'm going to be thinking about this all day. <laughs> well, what I think is interesting too, is many of the things that she talked about uh, very much are applicable to the cultural nonprofit mission-driven, you know, side of the attractions industry. And if you're, if you're watching and listening to this from the for-profit side and theme parks and family entertainment centers and, you know, in, in amusement parks, water parks, I, I feel like much, if not all of what she says, very much transcends both for-profit and 
nonprofit, because of the impact that you have on your community and the people that you are serving and giving access to all the people who you have the ability to be able to serve, I, I think is so widely applicable in, in our industry. And I love how she talks about access and she talks about removing barriers, but also building pathways. And I think a lot of times we'll talk about, okay, let's remove the barrier and just maybe assume that people will then go through that area, you know, but again, I think, you know, removing the barrier and then figuring out a way forward and helping people through all of those processes is critical to making sure that all the right people have access to all that, that education and the play and the fun and the team building and the family building, you know, that everybody that, that chooses to be part of that has the access. Yeah, and, and do not assume that cost is the only barrier or the main barrier uh, that is that is stopping access. And uh, Andrea shares just the you know just the wide range of all the barriers that are at play. So uh, I'm very excited to uh, to get to this interview. Well, I would say the only barrier left is for us to stop talking and to get Andrea here in the uh, in the interview. I thought you were going to say the only barrier is that swooshy sound between this intro and the start of the interview. Let's cue it up. Andrea Wiles, thank you so much for joining us today on the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me here today. Absolutely. We are so excited to jump into this conversation. So first of all, can we uh, get a little bit of your background in the industry and uh, hear a little bit about you? Sure. Just a little bit. It's not my favorite topic, but uh, it has been a long winding road. Uh, I uh, went to uh, school to be a lawyer. And so I would say that I am a lawyer, um, practiced for many years in San Francisco, but I have always been driven um, by a, a desire to witness social justice and to be a part of that. Uh, so that journey took me into kind of uh, public policy advocacy around children and families, understanding our systems that, um, that allow our families to be successful. And at, at some point then that, that turned into that advocacy, I recognized the opportunity that attractions, in this case, um, science centers and children's museums have to impact the lives of children and their families. And that there was a particular opportunity there um, to um, get on the, uh, on the train of access and opportunity to really build um, the pathways that are necessary. Everybody doesn't feel welcome at museums. It takes intentionality and hard work to identify the barriers that uh, prevent people from engaging in great stuff and from kids having access to fabulous programs and institutions. Uh, so that's kind of been my, uh, my passion project now for the last uh, um, coming too close to 20 years. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about where that passion came from and advocacy for children and in STEM education and for social justice? Um, great, great question. Um, I'm from Iowa originally, um, but grew up with a, a, enough connection to the world um, in terms of family members traveling and coming from other parts of the country that um, I just, I, early on recognized that um, there was a lot of world going on outside of my my particular universe there and that a lot of that world had to had challenges um, in self-sufficiency and justice and I very much wanted to learn in my view learn the language of um, the conversations that impact people's lives. And I thought that becoming a lawyer would be a critical part of that. And I think it was. Um, it's given me, uh, you know, the analytical capacity and the, the, the focus on things that are relevant. Um, but I really believe that in pivoting into cultural institutions, um, that gave me a broader base for, in, just in my view, broader impact because it's truly about getting really exceptional experiences to the children who um, then have, can fully blossom. It's ridiculous the, different, the difference in the resources that some children get um, versus others. 
So are those resources related to the barriers that you mentioned earlier, where you said, you know, some people just have barriers to engaging with those kind of institutions? Absolutely. Um, first and for- foremost, I mean, I, I think a, a key lesson over the, over time for me in this business has been that it's not always about price point. You can, you can make um, resources free and there's still gonna be barriers to engagement. And so part of that is being sure that um, you are creating um, a sense of welcoming, of belonging uh, in your institution or attraction, uh, that you are truly communicating um, with everybody in a shared language. And it's not a us, them, or a bring them over here. It is truly about um, integrating our senses of community uh, and identifying those real barriers, whether it's transportation or material access, meaning materials to use in programs, um, lots and lots of barriers that are completely surmountable if we provide, if we apply that intentionality to identifying them and building pathways around them. Can you expand a little on uh, why there might be friction in a sense of welcoming and belonging and why uh, not everyone might feel welcome in a museum? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do just, um, uh, you know, with how, how we're raised and what's a part of the community and our experience. So, you know, I remember, you know, holding on my mom's hand and walking into museums and walking into libraries. It was just integrated as part of, um, of what people did, of what we did. Um, in, in some of our communities, um, that, that just isn't the, the habit. Um, that exists, um, you, you know, you feel more reluctant. You look, look, I'm a lawyer. Before I went into a courtroom and have been in there a hundred times, I was really nervous, right? I wasn't used to it. I was uncomfortable. I didn't know what to expect. And then after I'm there a while, it's like, I own this place, right? <laughs> um, and, and that's true with museums too, believe it or not. And it's why exposing kids to different professions and opportunities and people is so critically important in those early years. And by early years, I mean K through 12. Kids have to know the opportunities out here. You can't assume that they do. And it's our role to make sure that we are giving them that exposure because, you know, back to the start of this question, what builds that sense of belonging access and opportunity to participate and a real intentional welcoming when you get there. So can you dive a little deeper into that intentional welcoming? Because I feel like that has as much to do with the physical space that they're walking into as it does with any employees that they might be interacting with and and how they, how they bring people into that experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really both, right? Um, and it, it, it's how it, it, because so much of it is the perception when they're outside the building. And so the first thing is, is bringing them in. Um, it, you know, a lot of our museums look and feel intimidating. Actually, they look kind of like courthouses. Um, you know, they're, they're big, they're imposing. Uh, they instill kind of in some people a sense of awe. And for some folks, that awe um, is something that they feel comfortable with. In others, it's you're going to step back until you, you feel like everything's okay, you got a handle on it. Um, so there is a physical component, I believe, to our spaces and how we welcome communities. Um, but it's also about, you know, I mentioned the, you know, it's not just about being free, you know, and honestly, Chicago has one of the best, um, I I think, experiments on this topic anywhere in that in Chicago, the the 10 major museums are required to give 52 free days a year, right? So that that's just part of, of the deal. And on those free days, though, many of us who, you know, focus on access, you're thinking, oh, well, let's make sure that people are, you got free days, right? So just all you have to do is let people know about the free days. What's really fascinating, though, is that the data shows that the families who, and the people who come on free days are demographically identical to the people that pay to get through the door. They're just thriftier. That's all. 
because they honestly they don't spend a lot on on other um, you know uh, upsells or retail or food either. So that means that the population that we're really trying to build a connection with, underserved and underrepresented populations need more than that. I believe it's about um, building relationships with them um, where they are. And that means intersecting and supporting with their teachers in the classroom so that their teachers are kind of, who, who may be their trusted counselors are kind of introducing you to the children, uh, the kids. Um, but it's also about, you know, their community-based organizations, right? I mean, kids, anybody that's been a full-time working parent um, or, or you have two parents in the home that are full-time, you're, you're, you know, you're using out-of-school time care, right? And so the kids are there and that's true regardless of your economics. So the opportunity is really how do you build a relationship with those organizations who those families already have trust in so that it's not about um, the DuPage Children's Museum going out and making a connection um, with an individual family and saying, hey, you know, here's a voucher, come on over here. It's about them being exposed in a way that is um, exhibits cultural humility, um, is respectful, and is leveraging the relationships they already have with trusted uh, members of their community. So to kind of can make that relationship, build that intersection outside of the walls so that the walls don't seem so imposing because they already know people in there and, and they've been explicitly invited in. And by invited in, I don't mean one invitation or one, hey, you can come free today. Invitations to institutions, just like invitations to parties at your house, um, often require more than just an email, right? I mean, people need to feel comfortable. They want to make sure you weren't just inviting me because you knew a friend of mine. They want to make sure that, you, you know, I want to make sure I'm being invited because you actually want me there, that I'm actually welcome, and that I'm going to be comfortable when I get there. So that might mean a lot of, a lot of emails. Uh, I, I'm convening an advisory committee later this week. It has been, I've been on the phone. I've been meeting people for coffee. It's not just, here's the invite. You don't do that for anybody. You have to build the relationship, the connection, the understanding of what's there for them first. And that's true of attraction visitors and guests as well. What are some of the ways to be able to measure the success of, uh, you said these, these invitations to make sure that people know that they are welcome. How do you know that you are making progress in, in achieving these initiatives? Well, I think there's a, a, a few ways to do that. Um, one, first of all, those relationships in the, themselves and the work that you're doing in communities are things that can be measured through traditional kind of program evaluation. Um, it's not just counting participants, but it, you can you can um, you can measure kind of um, affinities and agency and involvement in those experiences, uh, including coming back to the institution for a family day and participation. There are, however, you know, there's lots of demographic work that um, that some large museums can do, um, and smaller ones, I think, need to figure out how to make it how to make it viable. So, um, you know, having a robust research and evaluation team should be every institution's dream, so that we're not just guessing about why people are coming and what's happening when they're here. Um, it is about actually, uh, first of all, designing programs with their participation on the front end, and then iteratively evaluating to make sure that you're hitting the outcomes that you, you set out for yourself uh, for the program and the impacts, and then checking to make sure that those outcomes, you did everything you said you were going to do and had the expected outcomes. And if not, having the humility to shift, learn and shift always. So a minute ago, you used the phrase cultural humil humility. I wonder if you could kind of describe that a little bit more. Sure. Um, you know, I think it, we all have so much to learn 
uh, and uh, and certainly during the pandemic and um, the George Floyd's death has um, has opened all of our eyes, even those of us who cared uh, deeply about these issues and thought we were doing the best we could. You know, it hasn't been anywhere near close enough. And you know, I cultural humility is a way of thinking about um, being able to respectfully intersect intersect with cultures that you're maybe are not that you're not from or you don't identify with in a way that doesn't say that you're actually competent in them. And so cultural competence has been the, the language for a long time. And I think that um, that creates a lot of anxiety on everybody's part when we really do have a lot of different uh, people with lots of different backgrounds coming into our establishments. It shouldn't be about every staff person feeling like, yeah, I'm culturally competent. I've I've worked with somebody that looks like that before. It's about knowing when to ask questions, not making assumptions, and being respectful that whoever it is, whether they look different or they look the same, that you are going to approach them as a, as a guest, as a visitor in a way that is respectful, that you might know exact not you might not know exactly where they're coming from um, in, in their interaction with things. So cultural humility, I think it is a kind of a, an umbrella uh, language that has been being bandied about um, in the last few years. And I think it's certainly, I think um, it makes me feel more confident about the ability of our team members to learn, be open, do what they need to do um, to ensure that they're being as welcoming as possible. They don't have to know everything, but they do have to be respectful and willing to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So there's one thing that I'm curious about when looking at your LinkedIn profile, uh, you say that you are a visionary leader with a mission-driven and entrepreneurial mindset. And I'm curious particularly about the entrepreneurial mindset as it relates to your role in leading a well-established institution? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it all goes back to the vision of where you are and the vision of where I've been. I don't view these as static. I view these, uh, I view visions as something that um, is lighting the fire under me and everybody that's, um, that's working in the organization to urgently get something done. And that sense of urgency means that we need to be um, understanding our environment and um, and the tools um, that we can use to build relationships and to learn how we can have the greatest impact. So for me, uh, so our at the DuPage Children's Museum, our mission is to nurture joyful discovery and learning, but our vision is to ensure that all children thrive through access to extraordinary learning experiences. So any moment not spent doing just that, ensuring children thrive through access is wasted time and money. That needs to be our filter. That's our business purpose. Um, Just like if you're at McDonald's and somebody showed up with, I don't know, a a bucket of shrimp, You know, you can easily say, I I don't need that bucket of shrimp. We don't serve shrimp here. You know, organizations um, should live and breathe their mission and vision. It should honestly, it should be why everybody gets up in the morning um, and goes to their workplace or hops on Zoom uh, is because they understand whether they're in, in a room doing accounting or they're at the front door greeting a guest that those are both incredibly important roles in ensuring that we reach our vision. Um, So uh, when I say entrepreneurial mindset, I very much think of it in terms of it's a change management is to go in and make sure that, um, that we are doing all we can to reach that vision and um, have some really exceptional ideas and initiatives to get there. Well, I think you may have just invented a new sandwich for McDonald's, the McShrimp. I don't right. know. I'm throwing it out there. <laughs> I would suggest they stay on strategy, though. <laughs> <laughs> stay on brand. Um, right. But, you know, you mentioned. Learn to say no. 
Right. <laughs> I'm keying in on some of the really cool words that you're saying, because as part of the vision, you mentioned I think the vision or the mission, you mentioned thriving, right? The children yes. thrive. That's a high bar to mm. reach. And, mm. you know, certainly your vision, you want it to be something that you are always shooting for. Yep. So what are the things that you're doing at the museum to reach that? Yeah, well, Matt, that's really an exceptional question um, because I never spend any time on that. Um, well, I tell you, um, we've got some amazing things happening. We really, um, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to really lean into some work that we were intending um, that was on the agenda to do when I when I joined the organization, which is we provide an exceptional experience in the building um, for children who are zero, probably eight, nine, 10 is where they cap out. Um, but what about all the, the kids in our communities who haven't had the privilege of coming and visiting us? So we're, we're thinking about this in terms of we've been able to establish some really important partnerships to learn more about the needs of the communities around us and the communities of need, the communities of color, and develop some really great partnerships. So, you know, what we are in the process of doing is... Um, designing a and thinking about how do you position um, basically the the tools to empathize with some of the largest problems facing the world let's say climate um, renewable energy energy storage um, agricultural sustainability let's invest in positioning those questions those problems alongside a design thinking space that is from zero to 99, allowing people to connect with their creativity and lining up a whole series of tools, for, of tools from pipe cleaners to digital fabrication to actualize that creativity. So line up the big problems, line up the tools to solve them, and then immerse the families in a culture of creativity and solution building from their inception of their relationship with us, whether it's in our building, at schools, or community organizations. So that when um, uh, you come to us, um, or when you're intersecting with the uh, with DuPage Children's Museum, uh, you are understanding that you are the solution to these challenges. You have the power to create and solve these problems. And this will also allow us to bridge our ages, to move the age and our staying with our families through the middle grades, which is a, a period of, of tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and turmoil. If you've ever had a 13 year old in your house, <laughs> things are happening all the time that are really important um, uh, or the most important thing in the world as far as they're concerned. And honestly, for the families, I mean, I, I make light of it, but it is truly a difficult time and there aren't a lot of resources there. And so for, for us, developing a creativity and innovation incubator that is really about not just connecting kids to, to their design thinking and creativity, but bringing their families with them. Because, you know, as somebody, again, a lawyer, not usually, you know, labeled as creative, spent my entire life, you know, the whole creativity in the family, I thought of this as this gene thing, it went from my mother to my brother, and that was it, both highly creative people. It took me a while of being in the museum space to learn that I'm actually a creative person. And most people that think that they're not creative actually are. They just have never had the opportunity to think of themselves that way or to practice those skills. And we know that the future of work, the future of education is all about process, critical thinking, creativity, learning how to collaborate it is not a natural process. It ones that, it's one that needs to be practiced we're going to have that being practiced at the DuPage Children's Museum. Um, so that is just a little bit of something we're working on. Excellent. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because uh, I'm really interested in how you're able to take these mammoth issues like 
climate change and be able to package it in a way for children to be able to understand and appreciate it. Would love to hear like specific examples of, of the programming. In yeah, things. well, you know, the first step. So first of all, I'm sharing with you things that very few people know. Uh, so <laughs> the first thing that's important is that um, we don't make this up inside our office, right? I mean, we've got to talk to people. We've got to see how, how the community receives this. Uh, we need to work together to figure out what this is, what this is going to be, because um, we have a dream, we have a vision and how to solve multiple problems here at once, which is big issues. And here's this entire diverse population prepared to be engaged, who can be our solution builders, if we just design some programming and pathways for them. So, um, you know, I, you know, I, I might've lost track of your, what was your last question? <laughs> uh, taking these uh, huge issues and packaging them in, in a way for children to understand, appreciate, take action. So again, it, it's, it doesn't have to be the children that appreciate exactly how all these go together, but it's absolutely imperative that the adults in the room do. And I think helping, um, even with our, our kind of our creativity and innovation incubator, we want to have some of that time in the evenings or weekends devoted to adults, because I think it's very important that people see this entire development of children as highly relevant to solution building. This isn't something that you should only pay attention to if you have children. You need to pay attention to this incredibly important research uh, resource, our solution builders now, and we need to invest in them, in our communities. And then we have to be really intentional that it's not just a tiny handful of people that get to, to do the good stuff, that we actually have exceptional experiences for all children, where whatever their background and experience is, uh, so that they, uh, they have these opportunities. So Andrea, I don't want this to sound weird, but it sounds like you're talking, you're talking about something that's bigger than a children's museum, right? I mean, I, I think you're, you're, ta you're talking <laughs> about, that's why you're a visionary. That's, but that's what, that's what I, the message I'm getting, like, this is not just some place to go, you know, let your kids, you know, blow off some steam for a couple of hours. This is really creating a solution for the future. So how do you market that? How do you tell people that? And maybe that's part of the relationship building you talked about earlier, but I'd love to hear more about that. Totally. Well, look, um, it's, I think that there has been a paradigm shift and I'm not the only one in it in the last uh, couple decades of understanding what the role of cultural institutions can and should be in our communities. So I really look at it as um, schools have a lot of rules. Um, they're getting pulled in a hundred different directions and particularly here in Illinois, they rarely have the resources that they need, or at least the, 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 the schools that have the highest need and need more resources are usually not the ones that have them. So, you know, and then you have social service providers who are, have contracts to provide service, whether it's an after school program or it's, um, a mental health program or whatever it is. And they have a lot of rules. Cultural institutions are in a unique position to get to know their community and its challenges and its opportunities to solve them. So, you know, what, what makes sense in Chicago to do at MSI? That's, it's not a cookie cutter. I mean, some of the strategies are the same, but you can't just take that out here and plop it in um, the Western suburbs. The structures are different. Where our families are, I mean, there is a lot of need out in our uh, our suburbs. There are a lot of homeless families. There's a lot of hunger, but it's invisible. That's one of the new challenges. That's one of the challenges that now we're sitting out here going, okay, in this community, if we want to have the impact of creating access so that children thrive we're gonna to have to really get to know what's happening here and the barriers that families, caregivers of any, any relation of children and their providers have and partner with them to see what we can bring to the table to help support what they're already doing. 
not enough time to reinvent wheels. This is about aligning what an institution like ours can do to help a community move forward. So we got to spend the pandemic getting to know our communities and understanding where there was opportunity, um, where there were gaps to fill, barriers to remove, pathways to build. Um, and what I just described to you around global challenges that people in these communities care deeply about, but we don't have solutions for, and the strategies around the process thinking that our children need access to, and in a way that the important adults in their lives can understand and see the connections. You know, I, not long ago, somebody said, you know, we don't need to worry about memorizing facts anymore, right? I, if I don't know a fact, I Google it. That's what we do. But we do need to learn how to learn. And being an open learner is going to be required of all of us throughout our lives in ways that my generation and the genera my mother's generation, I don't think they entered into their professions thinking I'm going to have like 20 different jobs in five different professions. Um, so this nimbleness of thinking and problem solving, empathizing with your problem, identifying the solution, testing it, failing, being resilient to failing. And because that's part of the process, doing it again, repeat. This is something that isn't just about, uh, you know, an art class or the scientific method. This is about life now. And um, so you asked me how to market and sell it. Uh, it is people participate if they think it's relevant to them and their families and their lives. And I think these things are. Sure. When you talk about the way people learn and kind of the strategy and process behind it, and you gave the example of, we, you know, we don't need information anymore because we have it all at our fingertips. I would say what, or I would ask what has stayed the same about the way people learn and need to learn and what is perhaps very different from the last 10, 15, 20 years or so, particularly as it relates to the way that you present content in a children's museum and, and also where you see that going forward as well? Well, you know, I, I think that um, it's really about what we know about learning, right? I think um, the way people learn um, is really pretty consistent. It's just that we often um, put ways of learning on the menu that didn't work so well. So the, what we know about learning is that um, kids, adults, whoever you're talking about need to do things. They need to witness, they need to experience. Um, they, they, they need to have those experiences to build a, con a context for understanding the world around them. Um, they need the opportunity to fail. You know, and I would, I would say that the distinction that what's happening now and as I think, you know, with the next generation science standards that came out, God, you know, 10 years ago now, it seems like they were just brand new. I think we finally got um, a consensus that, um, yep, it's harder to measure process, but we have got to do it because if our schools are not teaching process, kids are not learning process. If they don't have the opportunities to practice, they're not learning how to learn. So. Um, I think that the next generation science standards and a whole bunch of other initiatives have, um, it's not like they all of a sudden said, hey, we learn by doing, and they're the only ones that had ever said it, but it has been systematized in a more important way now. And I do believe it's starting to take root um, in a way that will have a longer term impact. The challenge is that some of the best strategies from, for learning about doing are, are also loud and messy. Um, just like good science and engineering is, right? Good demos and explosions. Um, and there's been less tolerance for that happening in some of our high needs communities. And so the best learning styles actually require the most freedom, faith, trust, uh, respect 
And I think this is where the intersection with social justice comes in. We have to got to make the learning strategies that we know work available to everyone. And that's another place that um, whether you're a science center, a children's museum, a history museum, we're in a position to introduce that type of teaching and learning. Um, we, we, we get to do that. We get to cause um, revolutions of thought. We get, to, we get to create movements and get people saying, hey, yeah, great idea. I can do this over here too. Um, because it truly does take a village. Uh, and, but you do have to kind of light it on fire first so that people um, get there. There's, there are solutions out there. Um, we know what they are. Um, we just have to figure out how to get them to the people that need them the most. And I would also imagine with all that experimenting and experiences and the hands-on piece that over the last couple of years, that has also taken a bit of a hit just because, you know, people have been maybe a little less willing to touch something that somebody else has just touched and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the first days of the pandemic and we we're sure it just had to do with what was what <laughs> surfaces we were touching. And um, but boy, that was a science experience uh, experiment in action. Right. We learned as we went. That's what you have to do. Um, so part of what we really, um, you know, got to lean into then, as I mentioned before, was those partnerships figuring out how we could still connect to our audiences. But what we learned, and we, it took us a, more than a hot second linguistically, is we needed to provide programming virtually, but it wasn't virtual programming. The only thing about the programming that we provided that was virtual was the facilitation. So still had fun, hands-on, engaging, experiences that we could have uh, folks, our facilitators facilitate remotely. Um, it, it required that we provide, just like what we would do anyway, provide all the materials so that every kid is has access to the same good stuff um, and uh, is able to participate in the virtual experience. So we ended up um, during, you know, it took a while because there was so much chaos, um, but uh, for the schools um, to really decide that they needed the help, the teachers needed the break. So during the spring of last year, we delivered over 540 labs in a way that represented like over 17,000 instructional hours to like 14,000 kids. And we did that through the partnerships um, so that meant that um, right now, Lurie's Children's Hospital, we train them on how to deliver some programming. We don't have to be there. They have educators that go into the individual patient room. So they've delivered our programming like 20 times to 20 kids. Now, that's not a big number, but it's really important because those kids are restricted to their hospital beds. We've partnered with DuPage Pads. Um, homeless shelters became a whole different thing. They had to become transitional living places and hotel rooms. So figuring out how to do virtual programming in that environment was really hard. But you know what? We really got to know that team really well. And so now they are just going to be a partner of ours in everything that we're doing. Um, so, you know, and then the schools, of course, it took a second because so much was on their plate. Um, and everything, you know, as soon as you made a decision, a major fact came in, you had to make a new decision, right? So, uh, but um, we did what, you know, what we all should do. We delivered some free programs so that people could see that we were serious about we're going to deliver the good stuff in the right way, in a way that the kids are going to be engaged, have fun and learn, and we're gonna be supporting your teachers. So once we did that just a tiny bit, we ended up with um, a contract with one of the largest school districts in Illinois to deliver two labs to each of their 7,000 elementary school children. And we had, to, we, we had to hire 24 facilitators and we did that um, from across the country, even had um, one in Mexico City and one in Puerto Rico and a few in LA, because that was an advantage of virtual, 
we could hire talent wherever they were. And that's really an amazing thing to bring into a classroom in Naperville or wherever you are. Um, so that was the upside, you know? So they did really cool hands-on engaging programming and we facilitated it virtually. We are still doing that. We are also um, now, we, because people have very different levels of, com of comfort and of course the pandemic is, uh, you know, radically changes on a, a you know a monthly basis so uh we are prepared now we can do it virtually because we figured that out and we can do it um in person at the school or in person at the museum wow. so that was uh, what i was going to ask is how, how much of this was a temporary adjustment for covid and how much of this uh do you feel can continue on and now be just a permanent part of your programming yep. extending beyond the walls of of the museum itself yep. So um, we approach the pandemic as this is our time to learn um, and not about Band-Aids, but about um, strategies that are going to survive the pandemic. So whereas the virtual programming itself, you know, we probably won't be doing as much of it um, as we did during the pandemic, it built out some really incredible partnerships and ways that absolutely will survive the pandemic. So we worked with Lori's Children's Hospital, figured that out. There are a lot of other children's hospitals where children are confined to their, to their beds and they should have access to high quality um, learning experiences as well. And so what we learned will be more targeted to where the place, uh, where that need is uh, meeting families wherever they are, uh, but the relationships that we built throughout the communities and the fact that, you know, we view ourselves as just one of the players in this ecosystem around our, our children means that our, those partnerships, even though we're not doing them virtually, we have a much deeper, more extended um, opportunity to have an impact in other ways. So Andrea, one of the things that I'm curious about um, kind of goes back to the way you started this, talking about being a lawyer and then moving into the attractions world. What was that transition like going from the courtroom to the boardroom of an attraction? Um, because in some ways, I'm guessing those those uh, those jobs are very different, but maybe maybe they're more similar than I think. Well, you know, I'm going to say yes and, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, they are they are more similar than you think. Um, but you know, but a funny story and major difference. Um, the first uh, position I worked in after I um, I stopped practicing law uh, was working for a group called Voices for Illinois Children, which was a, a policy shop. And I remember walking over with my 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 mentor and the CEO Jerry Sturmer to a meeting. Uh, where there was somebody from the National Poverty Law Institute and some people from the mental health. And I'm literally, I'm like, so what's it going to be like? Are there rules? How do people know when to talk? <laughs> because I've been in such a rule-based environment, you know, depositions and taking turns, just, you know, figuring out how to share content. That was, that was weird. But the reality is there's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, it is about understanding your audience fundamentally, right? I mean, so if you're, if you're uh, working in front of a jury or if you are down at the front desk at DCM or at Six Flags, you better be figuring out how to connect with your audience and what's most relevant to them. And then if you've figured out something that you think is really impactful, you wanna be able to build the case so that other people believe that you have found something impactful, that you're not interested in wasting time, and there is no way you're going to waste their money if they invest in building out that impact. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, we're starting to run a little low on time, but we have, we have a, a few minutes left, and I'm curious of what advice you would give to aspiring executives who are looking to build their career, whether they're in a museum or in a cultural inst institution or on the for-profit side, you mentioned Six Flags a minute ago, so on the theme parks <laughs> and, uh, and tourist attraction side. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think it, 
I think in every position, it's important to identify what skills you're trying, you're, you, you need to acquire. Um, one thing that I think all of us learn over time is that um, there's no such thing as perfect. Um, it's, uh, it's about how do, you, how do you do what you do well, but then work on what you need to work on. And I, I say that from a, a mentoring position, as well as just kind of personally, you have to be, and now I finally, I'm going to use this phrase, a lifelong learner. I rejected that phrase a long time. It's an open learner, right? You have to be willing to, to learn not just how um, what your intent is, but how people are perceiving your intent. And, um, you know, and be intentional about getting the skills that you need and being humble about that. Um, people will listen to you um, and answer your questions. If you have humility, uh, in your approach, you can go as far as you want to go. You just keep learning. And that, that I'd say is one of the things that, so when you get in a position to manage, don't, don't always tell your teams what they're doing wrong. Make sure that for everyone, there is something, there's a reason they're on the team, something they do really well. The other ones are just your responsibility for coaching them through. And if your coaching doesn't work, then it's your responsibility to work with them to get them in a position either in your organization or in another one where they can be more successful. Um, but I think that uh, making sure that you have humility for yourself and that you approach your teams as it's all about assessing what does that person, what kind of support does that manager need? and providing it. It's not a cookie counter cutter ever. And boy, it would be, uh, it would be boring if it was. Yeah. Again, very well said. And I just had one quick follow-up on that because you talked about getting ready to understand how your intent might be perceived by other people, which can be kind of hard for people to, to take, I think a little bit. So how do you get ready to, to receive that feedback? Uh, Excellent question. Um, I don't know that you, uh, even the humblest of us, um, can ever be fully prepared to do that kind of um, self-analysis. But, and, and even if somebody has a different perception than what you're intending, that doesn't mean that you have to change everything. It just means that you need to reflect on, on how you're communicating back to knowing your audience, right? So you've just gotten some critical data about your audience and it's just about adjusting for it. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, growing up as a professional never ends. <laughs> there is always a new stage, but I can say that if you're doing something you're passionate about or working yourself towards that goal, um, learning the skills to get you in the position for that goal. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of fun to be had out here. Yeah. Andrea, this has been uh, such an exciting and informative conversation. And as we start to wind this down here, if people want to uh, get a hold of you to say hello, or if they want to learn more about DuPage Children's Museum, where would you send them? Sure. Well, I would send them to dupagechildrensmuseum.org um, and look at our website, or you can email me, awiles at dupagechildrensmuseum.org. Excellent. Well, as Josh said, this has been a great conversation. And Andrea, thank you so much for your time. And for everybody out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release, and even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit AttractionPros.com.